Some of you are former members who are back saying hi, and uh, we're so glad that you stayed over and you're here. We're, we're just, uh, it's just great to see you again. And then there are some of you who are here from our community, maybe visiting for the first time. We are so happy that you're here. We want you to know that we're just a group of imperfect people who have found hope in Jesus. And we want to be able to, to have a chance to share that hope with you if you're looking for hope. And uh, we all want to be able to make each day of our life count. We want to live on purpose. And so uh, we are so happy that you're here. My name is Kelly. I'm one of the ministers here, and I'm happy to be able to, to share from God's Word today. After the lesson, I'm going to be in the back. I'll be at the Welcome Center. And so if you have any questions about our church or you are looking for, to try to find a way to get plugged in and involved, I would love to talk to you. We're in a series this fall called Meet Up. And it's a time where we really focus on, on uh, reaching out to each other and, and really being able to, to focus on welcoming each other, expanding our circle of influence. And we're looking through two letters that were written at the same time by the Apostle Paul. The first that we studied in September and October is the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. We call this the letter of Colossians. The second one is that what we're in right now, in the month of November, we're studying a, a letter that was written to an individual. It's the letter of Philemon. And last week we introduced this letter and we saw that this letter was a short letter. We kind of call it a postcard letter. It's only 25 verses long. But these 25 verses are very impactful. It's a challenging letter. We saw that it's a controversial letter, and uh, there are many scholars in the past who have deba debated whether or not the, the letter of Philemon is even worthy to be in our canon, our New Testament. But we also saw that this letter was a very personal letter. It's a letter that was written to an individual about a specific uh, situation that existed, and, and I think us to make sure that we notice that that uh, we're to look at these messages, these letters in God's Word, as if God were speaking to us and challenging us and stretching us. Today, as we look at the letter of Philemon, we want to focus especially on the Apostle Paul the one who writes the letter. I'd like for us to, to try to enter into his world, enter into his setting, because the Apostle Paul, as, as a leader, as a mentor, as someone who has great influence, is in a difficult situation. He finds himself uh, confined to house arrest, probably in the city of Rome, in chains, and he is in a situation that he, where he's between two brothers, one in Colossae named Philemon and one brother, a brand new brother named Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave that ran away from his home, his, his place uh, uh, with his master there in Colossae, and somehow or another he met the Apostle Paul while the Apostle Paul was there in chains. 
And so, after spending time with the Apostle Paul, Onesimus becomes a believer. And Paul then finds himself in this situation where he has, he has Onesimus who has wronged Philemon, who has run away from Philemon, who has probably even stolen something from Philemon, and he's now a believer there with the Apostle Paul. And so Paul has to, to figure out, well, how do I, how do I navigate this? Jesus calls us uh, to, to a higher standard of godliness. Jesus calls us to reconciliation. And so what's Paul going to do in this situation? And Paul, as a leader, finds himself in a situation where he can't lead like the ways of the world. In fact, Jesus, many of you remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew 20 where he calls his apostles together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so Paul, a leader, is in this situation where he would probably like to just command Philemon to receive Onesimus back. He would probably like to command Onesimus as a runaway slave who has done Philemon wrong to go back and make things right. But he doesn't do that because of this new way of thinking, this new countercultural way that we, we, we relate to each other that's, that's spirit-led. And Paul had just written this letter to the church at Colossae. Probably Tychicus, who brought the letter from Paul, had just read it to the entire church and They had heard this from the Apostle Paul, where he said, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so what we see here is this battle of two perspectives. Paul calls it, earthly perspective and heavenly perspective. And Paul is sitting there in this prison and he's writing this letter to Philemon. Perspective. I spent a lot of time thinking about this word this past week, perspective. Because the way that we view something influences our priorities. It influences our decisions. It influences the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view others. And our perspective can change. Not long ago, I read an article that was a beautiful illustration of this. And um, many of you might identify with this. There's a a statue in New York City that's called Charging Bull. Have any of you seen Charging Bull? Okay, there's a few of you that have seen it. Have any of you taken your picture with Charging Bull? Uh, there's, there's always a crowd of people around Charging Bull. It was, 
It was a sculpture that just appeared on this traffic triangle right there near Bowling Green uh, in the financial district on the er- in the early morning hours of December 14th, 1989. There was no permit that was uh, given to put it there. It was just a statue that appeared in the middle of the night. One day it wasn't there, and then the next day it was there. And uh, it's, a, it's a huge statue. It weighs over 7,000 pounds. It's a, over 11 feet high and about 16 feet long. And uh, the sculptor, Arturo de Demonica uh, said that he made this statue to represent the energy and the strength and the unpredictability of the stock market. You see, in 1989, the U.S. was just coming out of the stock crash in 1987, and and so he made this to to really represent the the power of the the U.S. stock market and the economy that it that it uh, that it represented. So, if you look at this picture you can see that charging bull is very intimidating its head is lowered it's it looks like it's ready to charge and and those long wicked looking horns are there uh, at they're they're very imposing and the nostrils are flared out as if it's about to charge the muscles are bulging and you can really see how this would be a representation of power, a representation of, of uh, this intimidating force that, that uh, charging bull represents. But then an interesting thing happened. Evidently in New York City, things like this happen. Another statue appeared in the middle of the night in March 7th, 2017. It was one day before International Women's Day. It is a statue that's called Fearless Girl. And Fearless Girl was also there, put there on this traffic island. Fearless Girl's only 50 inches tall. Her hands are on her hips. Her head is back. And she's got this calm look on her face. And when Fearless Girl appeared, it became this sensation as well. And people just from all over the world flocked to New York City and they wanted to have their picture made with Fearless Girl who's standing right there in front of Charging Bull. But it wasn't long before people began to notice something. That when Fearless Girl was seen together with Charging Bull... Charging bull didn't appear so imposing. The perspective changed. If you look at charging bull from this perspective, you can see that, <clears throat> that it appears as if charging bull's trying to stop. You can see the hoofs are digging in, and, and it appears as if charging bull's veering away, trying to avoid fearless girl who's standing there with her back arched, her hands on her hip, and this calm look on her face. Well, evidently it wasn't just a few people who thought this. Even the sculptor, the the sculptor of Charging Bull was so upset that he petitioned the courts 
to move fearless girl because it changed the whole perspective of charging bull. And so uh, his court case was successful. And on December the 10th in 2018, fearless girl left her original position there in front of charging bull. And she was moved to the New York Stock Exchange where, to the best of my ability, it's where she stands today. Perspective. Perspective is something that's very powerful, but it also changes the way that we think, changes the way that we see uh, ourselves and the way that we see reality. The same thing happened with Jesus' followers. And it's easy to pinpoint when their perspective changed. You see, when Jesus was placed on that cross, it appeared that this, that this power struggle between what Jesus stood for, the way of the cross, came into to opposition with the power of the empire. And when Jesus was there hanging on the cross, it looked like the empire won that the cross appeared to be a symbol of weakness and shame. It appeared that the dreams and the hopes of the early followers of Jesus were crushed, that he was put to death by a corrupt religious system backed by the abusive, heartless, oppressive might of the Roman Empire. And yet, something changed. And that change happened on that Sunday morning. We call it resurrection morning. We call it Easter morning. When Mary showed up at the tomb and there was no body, she, she thought that it had been stolen or placed someplace else. She ran back to tell the apostles. Peter and John and the others run there to the tomb and they, they see the, the barrier closed, but, but they don't know where the body is. Peter and John go back confused. They don't know what's happened. Mary is there outside the tomb and she's weeping. And there, when she looked up, she saw someone that she thinks is the gardener. And she says, please, sir, if if you'll just tell me where you've placed the body of Jesus, I'd like to go and, and finish preparing that his body. And the gardener, what she thought was the gardener, said, Mary. Mary. And Mary recognized the voice. She knew this wasn't the gardener. She said, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary then runs in to the city and she tells all the believers they didn't steal the body the body's not someplace else he is alive and after that Jesus began to appear to the to the disciples and what was before a group of fearful followers who had denied Jesus turned into this courageous group of people that were willing to stand up for the name of Christ no matter what. 
No matter what the cost, no matter what the sacrifice, no matter what the risk. And the cross became more powerful than even the empire of Rome. You see, the perspective changed, and it changed everything. They began to realize that that Jesus' promises were true, and they recalled his teachings, and, and these teachings began to make sense now. That to live, you must first die. That the last will be first, and the first will be last. That the greatest will be the servant. That unless you are like a little child, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, years later, this process was repeated over again. This man named Saul, who we know now, looking back, we know that he later changed his name to Paul, and he's the one that wrote the letter. But this man, Saul, was actually living by the rules of empire. If closeness to God depended on gender, pedigree, education, devotion, Paul would have been at the top of the class. And not only that, he expected everyone else to be in line with his beliefs as to what was right. And Paul used the principles of empire to go and to force them to follow and to line up with his version of faithfulness. He used domineering power, authority. But then something happened to Paul, this man named Saul. And if, you, and if you've gone back and you read in the book of Acts, you can see what happens. Paul's headed to Damascus to, to get a group of followers of the way, followers of Jesus, and as he's going... He's hit by this bright light, which is actually the presence of Jesus. He comes face to face with the resurrected Lord, and it totally changes his mindset. Whereas before he used threats and beatings and prison sentences and even murder to force people into his way of thinking, he changed because he met the resurrected Lord. He began to realize that that true strength was found in weakness, not in power, not in domination. In other letters, he says, when I am weak, it's then that I am strong. And he wrote once, he said, all I want to do is to know Christ, to share in his suffering, to be conformed to his death. And so, it's this, it's this Paul, this Paul who has had this change of perspective that's sitting there in chains. And he's right there next to this, this new Christian named Onesimus. And Onesimus hears about Jesus. He becomes a believer. And then Paul begins to talk to him about this new perspective. Now that he's a follower of Christ, his life changed. He has a new, a new focus, a new purpose. 
And Onesimus probably realizes that he needs to go back. He needs to go back and make things right with Philemon. And this is a very risky thing for him to do. You see, it's a long journey back to Colossae. And he is a runaway slave. If he gets found out, he could even be put to death. But Onesimus chooses to do this. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter. And we're going to read this letter again. We read it last week from the New Living Translation. Today I want to read from the English Standard Version. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefits from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, 
and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. A beautiful letter, a letter written in love, but consider Paul's predicament. He has no control in this situation. He's in chains. He's a long, long way from Philemon. He has no control over Onesimus. Onesimus could change his mind. He could be headed back to Colossae and just say, you know, I don't think that that's what I want to do. And he could just blend back into the crowd, never to be heard from again. It could be that that Onesimus could have been captured on the way back to Colossae. This is a risky move for Onesimus. But Paul also has no control over Philemon. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He has his best intentions that when Onesimus gets back and sees Philemon face to face, that when Philemon reads the letter, that he'll go and he'll embrace Onesimus, the one that has wronged him, and offer him forgiveness. Paul has no control, but he sits down in weakness and he writes this letter. And he begins this letter with a posture of humility, a posture of weakness. He says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. One scholar wrote, intervening in the master-slave relationship, a relationship fully entrenched in the culture of the day, Paul undercuts the culture itself at the outset by making it clear that he himself is riding in chains of Christ Jesus. His theological reflection on his own imprisonment speaks to the Christian reality that there is really only one master and Lord, and we are all slaves and servants by nature. Paul's chains set a context for Philemon's response. And so what do we see in this letter? What do we see in Paul's appeal to Philemon? How can we as Christians, living under the cross, make a difference? Well, first of all, we can see that Paul, Paul's appeal comes from a life of integrity. In other words, Paul's talk is the same as Paul's walk. It's a life that lines up with his teaching. You see, it's one thing to preach about how there's neither slave nor free. But it's quite another to put it to test by sending Onesimus back to find reconciliation. You see, it would have been really easy for Paul to just kind of close a blind eye to Onesimus and say, Onesimus, you know, it might be better for you just to blend in. Or or maybe he could have rationalized and said, you know, I really think that Onesimus is value to me, valuable to me here. I think I'm going to just have Onesimus stay here with me. Surely Philemon will understand. But that's not what Paul does. He looks at Onesimus. He says to Philemon, he says, Yes, this is difficult, but I'm no stranger to difficult situations. Look at these chains. You see, Paul isn't asking Philemon to do something that he himself is not already doing. 
But Paul's appeal also comes with the anticipation of acceptance rather than doubt. It's as if Paul's saying, I'm looking at your life, Philemon, and I can see fruit of God's Spirit working in your heart in so many ways. And I have no doubt that you're going to continue and let God shine through you in the way that you receive Onesimus back. Look at the words he used. Our beloved fellow worker. And then he says, I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. He says, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Verse 7. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. You see, I think as fellow believers, we need to do a better job of catching others doing good things and honoring them for that. I think that we need to take advantage of that wonderful tool that we call encouragement. Because Satan's going to try to do everything that, he, that, that the, the evil one can do to discourage us. And this is what Paul's doing right here. He's saying, Philemon, you are already letting God's Spirit work in you. I'm confident that even this request will be one that you let the Spirit guide you in. But then we can also see that Paul's appeal in this letter comes from a heart of love, not from legislation, not an attempt to control. It's, it's, it's an appeal that's based out of a close relationship that Paul has already with Philemon. He says, though I would bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. You see, relationships in Christ, they, we don't interact from a top-down direction. This is difficult for our culture, but it's especially difficult for other cultures in the world. Culture like in Thailand. In Thailand, for instance, where I served for several years, they don't even have a word that means brother. There is no word in their language that is, that is for someone else that's equal to you. You have the word pi, which is someone above you, or you have the word nong, which is someone who is below you, but there's not even a word for brother, someone who is equal to you. And so whenever we're in church and we make an announcement and we want everybody to come, you invite the pi nong, all who are above you and all that are below you, everybody is invited. You see, this is just the way that the world thinks. But in Christ, that's not the case. We have no above and below. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. And so the Apostle Paul leads in this way. He shows us how this is done. And so he doesn't command He doesn't legislate. He doesn't try to control. He appeals out of this relationship of love. 
But I think that overriding in all of this is that Paul is convinced in the power of the gospel to change hearts because of this new perspective that we have. And so Paul is driven by this new focus, this focus on reconciliation. It's as if Paul's saying, God has changed my heart, and, and I know that God can change your heart. And if God has reconciled with us this way, then we should be all involved in reconciling with each other in this way because our God is a God of reconciliation. In Paul's mind, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a mission. You have a ministry. It's already been assigned to you. And that is the mission. That is the ministry of reconciliation. In his letter that he writes to the church at Corinth, he says this way. He says, you know, you, you, we've got these two world views going on. And, and so from now on, we don't see each other from a worldly point of view. And in verse 18 of chapter 5, he says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, this is our calling. This is the hope that we have. That because Christ has, through Christ we have been reconciled with God, we now are able to reconcile with each other. And it's not through power. It's not through manipulation. It's not through entitlement. It's not through demanding or controlling. But it's through love. In the words of Paul, when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Because it's Christ's power working through me. So as I was doing my study this week, there were three questions that were put on my heart. And I would like for you to wrestle with these as well. How has God spoken to you today through his word? If Paul had written to you, what would he have asked you to do that would stretch you? And when you hear the word reconcile, who does the Holy Spirit bring to mind? You see, we've all been commissioned as followers of Jesus to be ministers of reconciliation. Because of Jesus, we've been reconciled with God. And so as we leave today, may we be able to leave on mission to offer hope 
to a world that has no hope and reconcile with anyone. You see, as as Jesus was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's not only our mission, it's our identity. May we live that out. So as we close today, we're going to sing a song, and it's a song that encourages us all to respond to the teaching of God's Word. If you would like prayers, we can, we'll have people around the auditorium to pray with you up front and back. If you'd like to study more, if you'd like to be immersed into the powerful name of Jesus, whatever your need might be, we would just like to use this time to encourage one another to respond while we stand and sing together.